You're about to listen to part two of episode five of the Haycourt's Dialogue series podcast. The same disclaimer applicable to part one also applies to this second part. That is, all comments and contributions made by the participants in this episode are made in their individual and personal capacity only, and hence ought not be understood as reflecting the positions of any of their respective organizations or partners or anyone else. That being said, we hope you enjoy this second part of our discussions. Welcome to the Hate Courts Dialogue Series podcast. Welcome back for part two of our conversation on some of the legal and political issues raised by the arrest warrants issued by the International Criminal Court on the 17th of March 2023 for Vladimir Putin and Maria Lvova Belova. In part one, Judy Frazier and Victoria Kerr, Serhii Masol and Owiso Owiso discussed several issues to consider in respect to international criminal justice. Ending on considerations about how narratives are being contested in respect to the alleged crimes being committed. Picking up from where we left off, and staying with this issue of building and contesting narratives, we start off the second part of the episode by considering a related issue early in our conversation about a potential hierarchy of crimes, and the pursuit of charges for the crime of aggression. Now, this was an issue that can be gleaned from the speech given by President Zelensky, the President of Ukraine, when he visited the Netherlands earlier in May. Therein, After stressing that thousands of war crimes had been committed, Zelensky said, and I quote, Only one Russian crime led to all of these crimes. This is the crime of aggression, the start of evil, the primary crime, end of quote. He then quoted from the International Tribunal in Nuremberg, when it stated that, and again I quote, To initiate a war of aggression is not only an international crime. It is the supreme international crime, differing only from other war crimes, in that it contains within itself the accumulated evil of the whole. End of quote. The speech also contained a strong push for the establishment of a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. As we have been discussing, the narratives being told about the crimes allegedly being committed matter greatly. So what discussions are being had around this crime of aggression, and this call for a special tribunal? And in what ways are these related to the arrest warrants issued by the ICC? Oiso, why don't you start us off? I think um, th- there's been lots of discussion around um, a, tribu- a special tribunal for aggression. And I suppose that, at, th- at least my observation, is that there is broad agreement that there, of course, needs to be a tribunal of some sort uh, to address the crime of aggression, which the ICC does not have jurisdiction over at this particular point for various reasons, including you know the fact that Russia is not a state party and neither is uh, Ukraine, but also because the aggression jurisdiction of the ICC is a bit more complicated than you know than the other than the other for the other crimes. But that's a different story. So there's broad. At least my sense is that there's a there's broad agreement that there needs to be some sort of accountability mechanism for uh, for the crime of aggression itself. But um, the disagreement arises as to what form this tribunal should take. So broadly speaking, I think there are three possibilities for establishing an aggression tribunal for for Russia's aggression against Ukraine. Though uh, only two of these seem to have gained traction amongst commentators and stakeholders and states. So the first option, at least, which this is a very theoretical option, is a tribunal established by the, Security, the UN Security Council acting under Chapter 7 of the UN Charter, similar in nature to what the Security Council established for the former Yugoslavia and for Rwanda. 
this is obviously not a practical option, as I mentioned at the beginning, because at this point, at least, uh, because the very possibility that Russia would veto such resolution before uh, the Security Council is very live, I, I suspect, but the moment it's stable, Russia would veto it. So this is not exactly, so at a theoretical level, that is an option, but it's not uh, a practical option at the moment. But the second option, which has gained much support among international law commentators, uh, and from Ukraine itself, and from uh, many other states, is a tribunal established through a treaty between the United Nations and Ukraine, which would call, of course, for a resolution of the UN General Assembly, authorizing or endorsing the conclusion of such a treaty with Ukraine, which is similar in process to, I believe, uh, the process that led to the establishment of the Sierra Leone, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and the extraordinary chambers in the courts of Cambodia. So proponents of this model argue that with the endorsement of the General Assembly, uh, this special tribunal would be international in nature. That is um, reflecting, it would reflect the collective will of the so-called international community, and it would possibly make it easier to address the, the thorny issue of the of head of state immunity, which is another issue. But the pesky issue with this model, at least in my opinion, is it's quite unlikely to get a majority of the 190-something member states of the, of, the, of the United Nations to actually vote, to, uh, vote for such a resolution. So while the General Assembly has quite easily adopted resolutions in the past, I believe two or three of them, condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it is a bit presumptuous, I think, uh, to assume that this condemnation would automatically translate to support for a criminal tribunal. Uh, it's one thing to condemn an obvious violation of, of, of you know, the non-aggression norm. It is a totally different other thing um, to support an international criminal tribunal for such aggression, at least in the opinion of many states. So current indications are that many states are uncomfortable with this proposal. Um, hence, no resolution as of today's date has been tabled before the General Assembly. Right. Uh, secondly, it's also very, it's very possible, I think, for the General Assembly to, you know, to pass a resolution without the affirmative vote of a majority of UN member states. That is actually quite possible. Such a resolution, because that, this resolution would not necessarily require the affirmative vote of a majority of members of the, of the UN, um, of the United Nations, it would only require a two-third majority of states present and voting during the adoption of such a resolution. So this means that this tribunal could even be established by a minority vote of UN member states. So, I um, mean, some commentators, I would think here, of Professor Kevin Yon Heller and myself have argued uh, that a tribunal established in this manner would not be international and it would not be legitimate in any sense of the word. In the political sense of the word legitimate and international, I, a tribunal established by a minority of UN member states, in my opinion, cannot claim to be international and it cannot claim to be legitimate. This would undermine rather than strengthen the quest for accountability for the crime of aggression. In this case, in any case, I bet that many states would be rather uncomfortable with the precedent set by this resolution, but that is um, what I mean by this is uh, um, the fact that a minority of UN member states can at any time mandate the establishment of a criminal tribunal against any member states. I foresee that many, many states would be very uncomfortable with setting such a precedent. Right? This then leaves us with, um, but I have to mention at this point that Ukraine seems to be very supportive of a tribunal established through a treaty between Ukraine and the General Assembly for reasons that still evade me to this day. So then this leaves us, I believe, with the third option, which is the most viable, in my opinion. This would be a hybrid tribunal established by a treaty between Ukraine and a regional intergovernmental organization, in this case, 
the Council of Europe or the European Union, but I'll focus on the Council of Europe because that seems to be where much of the conversation is concentrated. This would be a domestic mechanism that is part and parcel of Ukraine's domestic legal system, but supported by the Council of Europe. Establishing it would simply require that Ukraine sends an invitation to the Council of Europe and the Council of Europe uh, accepts that invitation and then they conclude a treaty. So Ukraine is a sovereign state, obviously, and is therefore competent to extend such a request or an invitation. And under international law and, of course, the internal law of the Council of Europe, the Council of Europe would be competent to accept that invitation. So basically, Ukraine and then the Council of Europe under international law are competent to conclude a treaty amongst themselves to establish a hybrid tribunal, which, in all sense of the word, would still be a domestic court within the domestic legal system of, um, of Ukraine. But I think, as, as, as Karl mentioned, is it last week or the week before that, um, uh, the, the Ukrainian president was in the Netherlands when he strongly came out against um, domestic hybrid tribunal. I'm not particularly, particularly sure why, but to me it appears as if this is the best option. We then have to ask ourselves, I mean, when, when we look at the, uh, the reaction of, of the Ukrainian president to these two proposals of a General Assembly um, a General Assembly resolution, mandating a tribunal, vis-a-vis a hybrid tribunal, we then have to ask ourselves the question, whether the preference, uh, whether um, Ukraine's pre- preference for a general assembly tribunal is a genuine effort at accountability, or is it, you know, merely trying to push, you know, basically a push to, to so, sort of score some political or ideological point? Is the point here that we want to score a political or ideological point by having a UN endorsed mechanism, or is the point that we actually want to ensure accountability for the crime of aggression? So, to me, it appears to me that if indeed the goal here. Is, a, is criminal accountability for the crime of aggression, then it follows then that the option that is easy to explore and which is likely to ensure that a tribunal is established as soon as yesterday should then be explored. And this is the hybrid court route, which, is, which, which if Ukraine wanted to get it going, could be up and running as soon as yesterday. Yeah, well, I, I want to echo what Awisa said and, and also share his... Uh pessimism regarding the the UN route. Certainly the UN Security Council is going to be a no-go. But I think the UN General Assembly also isn't something we can rely on. Um, There was the resolution adopted just in February 2023. So this is sort of the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. Um, And this called for Russia to withdraw, etc., in quite strong terms. But there were only 141 states voting in favor of that. There were seven states voting against. And here we have Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, Mali, Nicaragua, Syria, and of course, Russia. But there were also over 30 states that abstained. And this includes China, India, Pakistan, South Africa, Sudan, Ethiopia, a range of other states. So I think um, that I agree with Awisa that if the resolution was actually to create some sort of mechanism for accountability, you might find that number of states opposing or abstaining increasing dramatically. And I think that it could also be seen as a dangerous precedent, both in relation to what Awisa said about legitimacy and international law. But also I think some states like the USA might also be a little bit nervous about a precedent like this. Because if a minority of states or a slim majority of states in the UN General Assembly can create a body like this, that also means that could be used against other states, other UN Security Council states, including the USA. So I think we might even find some Western states feeling a little bit uncomfortable with the creation of some of these um, sorts of institutions. 
um, especially when it comes to something like aggression. As Aweeso said, the jurisdiction for aggression at the ICC is much more limited. It's based on the Kampala amendments, and then those have to be separately ratified. So there are many more other steps that have to be taken. And so some people argue that there is an impunity gap when it comes to aggression that should be filled. But there are different ways to fill that gap through the creation of a new tribunal, through amending the Rome Statute itself. There are different paths that could be taken to address that impunity gap regarding aggression. But I am falling on the side of pragmatism and thinking that right now um, I would prefer to pursue um, more realistic crimes like war crimes before the ICC um, rather than creating new bodies, funding new bodies, challenging jurisdictions of those bodies, and then perhaps just adding to the fragmentation of international law and its institutions. It's important to look at what has been said by various countries in support of this tribunal. So I have um, some comments in front of me. I think there was in April 2023, a G7 statement, which supported the creation of an internationalized tribunal based in Ukraine's domestic system. And that was obviously agreed by Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the UK and the US, along with the EU more broadly. Um, then Zelensky visited The Hague, as has already been mentioned, and seemed quite against uh, a hybrid option. But then just yesterday, in fact, Zelensky made a speech at the online summit of the core group of leaders on the establishment of the Special Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression Against Ukraine, in which he was supporting a Nuremberg Tribunal option, which is in fact a different option from, I think, anything that's been mentioned so far. And then the the core group itself issued a joint statement just referring to a tribunal without kind of any detailed reference uh, to a specific model. So I think there's still a lot of confusion about the different models that are available um, and the support for those different models. And I think that actually we can break down the UN General Assembly option a a little bit further as well, because I think that there's the option of an internationalized uh, tribunal within Ukraine's own domestic system, and also uh, an international tribunal with domestic elements. And I think perhaps when Ukraine is voicing its concern as to the hybrid option, it's it's referring a little bit more, I think, in in my understanding, to a tribunal uh, or a court within the domestic system. But I'm not sure if uh, the comments relate to a tribunal which is an international one with domestic elements. So I think there's again a little bit of a confusion between the different types of um, options that are available. Regardless of either of those options, it would still require, as has been mentioned, UN General Assembly agreement. And I think that is the, the main issue uh, to overcome. On establishment of a tribunal um, or a court with the agreement of uh, the Council of Europe or a regional body along those lines, I think that questions again may arise as to the international nature of such a court and whether that would overcome immunities in that respect. I think those have been widely raised in academic discussions on this as well. I think that uh, what, what, I, what I have observed is that the discourses about the International Criminal Court's investigations of war crimes and arrest warrants 
um, go hand in hand with the discussions about punishment for Russian aggression against Ukraine. Since 2014, there has been some confusion, admittedly, uh, whether the ICC can, in principle, prosecute the crime of aggression uh, in the situation in Ukraine. Nowadays, these issues, it seems to me, have been clarified to the general public, and yet the government has not announced clearly which kind of an option it wants to pursue. It seems to me that currently the Ukrainian government is collecting information from legal experts from all around the world as to the types of uh, special tribunal of Russian aggression, and at the same time tries to convince as many stakeholders, primarily states, as possible. And here I would like to outline two issues. The first is that justice de delayed may not necessarily be justice denied. It can, in fact, be justice delivered. Let me give you one example. The former Ukrainian ambassador in Germany, Andriy Melnik, had a meeting with a high-ranking German state official shortly after the full-scale invasion of Ukraine had begun in February 2022. This German statesman believed that Russia would win within a few hours. And this was a reason for Germany not to provide any military assistance to Ukraine at the time. However, when Ukraine proved capable of defending its sovereignty in the first days and weeks of the full-scale invasion, Germany and some other states began to provide weapons, notably heavy weapons, to Ukraine. What I wanted to say is that the international support of a special tribunal for the Russian aggression against Ukraine will boil down to what is happening on the battlefield. It seems that historically, many states tended to support winners, not losers. And here comes the second point, and it is diplomatic. Unfortunately, Ukraine has for many years ignored Africa and Latin America at the diplomatic front. There were very few embassies of Ukraine in these regions. And as a result, the Russian propaganda is much more visible, noticeable in these parts of the world. People in um, Africa and Latin America listen to their own media and Western media, which are um, very vocal. And as an alternative to these narratives, they listen to Russian media. And in this war of narratives, the Ukrainian voices are not heard. And one of the uh, responses by Ukraine is to become more visible in these parts of the world. Quite recently, the Ukrainian government announced the establishment of new embassies in Africa. Right now, when this podcast is being recorded, the Ukrainian foreign minister is on an official visit in Latin America. And that is the first visit of a Ukrainian foreign minister to this region in 10 years. One of the solutions, as I see it, is when Ukrainian voices are directly brought to the audiences in the global south, when Ukraine is not 
perceived as Western European, which it is not, then the messages of decolonization of their imperial war of aggression waged by Russia would be better understood. Of course, when these the same messages are conveyed, conveyed by Western experts or politicians, particularly from the United States of America or the UK, they are treated with skepticism. People in the global south immediately recall their own histories of being colonized. Ukraine has never colonized any country. So it has a, a clean hands. And then uh, its message would be uh, much more powerful than it has been so far. Just uh, to add on to what Sergei said, it was probably just a little response. Um, of course, I'm not discounting the um, the so-called Russian propaganda. I mean, that's, that's all over the world and uh, Russian propaganda, American propaganda, and everybody has propaganda going on. Going on and, and I'm not discounting the effect or impact of that. But I do think, again, that if, um, if Ukraine wants, as a state wants to win hearts and minds on the African continent and in Asia and in Latin America, it really needs to do some, you know, a lot of introspection. And the reason why I say that is because, is because these states and these peoples have their own minds independent minds and they can make up their own minds and they're not blind they're not blind to history they're not blind to current affairs and just to um, you know what i mean by that is that if as if, if ukraine decides to approach latin american countries or african countries asian countries seeking support on particular issues the ukraine is obviously going to be asked what its voting record has been on issues that are of particular importance to africa and to asia and to latin america so I would just like us to go back a little bit and, and look at what Ukraine's voting record has been on resolutions on racism, on resolutions on indigenous persons. So the, it's, it's a matter of public record that Ukraine has consistently voted against its resolutions on racism and resolutions on indigenous persons, both before the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council. So if you are going to Latin America and Asia and Africa to seek support for, you know, um, for for, for your quest for accountability in, in the wake of Russia's aggression against Ukraine, of course, expect to be asked by these states because they have independent minds of their own. Expect that they will ask you, why is it that when you are in trouble, you want us to assist you, but when we need your vote on issues that have no particular, you know, no particular military impact, like votes on, 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 on racial equality and indigenous persons, you've consistently voted against them and including votes on Palestine, for instance. So, yes, it's important for, for Ukraine to spread its wings and actually approach states and have diplomatic conversations, but it needs to be very aware that you're obviously going to be asked these questions and the, because these states have their own independent minds and they can make them regardless of Western propaganda or Russian propaganda or Ukrainian propaganda or any propaganda of any sort. So that is something that Ukraine should actually have in mind. In fact, um, Sometime last year, the Ukrainian foreign minister was on a tour of the African continent. That tour was cut short simply because um, every state where he wanted to go, every state that he visited, started with, I believe uh, he started with Uganda, he went to Senegal. And the question he was asked was, last month there was a resolution on you know, racial equality and you voted against it. What response do you have to that? And that was, a, it's a, it was such an, an uncomfortable meeting that the foreign, the foreign minister was forced to cut it short because he did not expect these states to be asking these particular questions. Diplomacy and international relations is always a question of state interests, and that is something we cannot ignore. But of course, I would like to see at a particular point, um, I would like us to get to a particular point when, where there's, there's um, galvanized support across the African continent or, the, or Latin America or Asia 
against Russia's aggression. But before we get there, we, we actually have to be very honest about our own you know, diplomatic histories. But then um, as regards the international community's reaction, of course, it's been rather mixed. One category of states, obviously, being most of them being European states, have um, welcomed the arrest warrant very enthusiastically. But then, of course, we also have to, we also have to, 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 to realize that these European states who have been very enthusiastic in welcoming this arrest warrant were very quick to chastise the court when it authorized an investigation into Palestine. So that sort of, you know, that, that sort of hypocrisy is not very, is not lost on anyone, right? Again, um, the United States, for instance, which is a very, which is the main ally of, the, of, of Europe, was more circumspect. Of course, they were, they were a bit more circumspect in their reaction. They were cautious about the, uh, they were cautious about the arrest warrant. They welcomed it. But uh, if I were to quote President Biden, I think I have a quote somewhere here. Um, I think it's justified. But the question is, the ICC is not recognized internationally by us. End quote. That's what Biden says. In the case of the U.S., this reaction is rather consistent with. Uh, the Americans' self-interest, just like, you know, much like every other state, as I mentioned in the beginning or earlier on, self-interest basically, you know, um, informs how some of these states uh, react. But to me, what is, more, um, what is more prominent is another much larger group of states, mainly from the Asian continent, Latin America and Africa, who have chosen to be, uh, they've chosen what I would call cautious silence. And uh, there may be multiple reasons for that, but I do suspect that every state is primarily concerned with its own interests, and the silence does not necessarily mean that they support uh, Russia's aggression. In fact, if we if we refer to some of the uh, the previous resolutions by the General Assembly, most of these states actually condemned the invasion or the aggression. So their silence is not necessarily support, in my opinion, for Russia's aggression. I do believe that most of them don't support it, but it's primarily concerned with their own interests, and the balance here tales for them, at least, in favor of sitting on the fence where a powerful you know, nuclear-armed state like Russia is involved. In any case, a majority of Asian or African states have over the years expressed mistrust in the way the ICC conducts its business, and that is the kind of mistrust that we cannot sweep under the rug, and it's actually coming out more prominently now. And the very speedy investigation of the Ukraine situation, as compared to the very slow action in other situations, such as, uh, I believe, in Afghanistan, and Myanmar, in Nigeria, and Palestine, and in action in other situations such as Iraq, where the United Kingdom was involved, and uh, the Mavi Mamara case where Israel was involved, these have contributed to this sort of skepticism and this interest. So taken together, these states do not appear to view the ICC as a viable and partial arbiter, and that, that I would assume, at least the way I see it, informs their very cautious reaction to this arrest warrant. But I have to, I have to emphasize that I do not believe that their cautious, their cautious silence is because this, they, they, they support, support Russia's aggression. It is simply because you know, states are looking out for their interests and their relationship with the ICC over the years has not particularly been very, you know, very rosy and the ICC hasn't done much to actually you know, build upon that confidence. Following on from what Oiso was saying about states pursuing their own self-interest, I think a very clear example of this is the United States and its relationship with the Rome Statute and the International Criminal Court. The United States was part of the drafting process and the negotiations of the Rome Statute um, in the 1990s, but they then did not sign with a caveat there um, and ratify the treaty. Um, so they wanted to be part of the process that would set up this court, and they were particularly involved in things like the powers of the prosecutor and whether they would be able to independently start investigations or not. Um, and also, of course, they included a role for the UN Security Council 
in relation to the ICC. So they sort of secured some some power for themselves in the coordinates operations via the Security Council, where they, of course, have a veto. Then under the Bush administration, they were actually actively opposing the International Criminal Court, and they were agreeing bilateral agreements with other states to avoid the jurisdiction or the exercise of the court's jurisdiction in relation to their nationals. Now, under Republican and Democratic governments, it's changed somewhat over the years. Of course, a low point was under the Trump administration, where they actually sanctioned the prosecutor, Ben Suda, and a member of her staff, um, Mocha Chochu. And they were individually sanctioned. Um, and so those sanctions were in place for um, the end of Trump's term. And it was then only under Biden that they were removed. Um, but they, under Trump, there was very strong anti-ICC sentiments. And that, of course, related to the investigation in Afghanistan. And here you can see that the ICC itself is also not immune um, to these political considerations. Because when the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court asked the pretrial chamber to open an investigation into Afghanistan, this was originally denied by the court in 2019. And then it was on appeal in 2020 that it was only granted permission to open up this investigation. And then following the appointment of Prosecutor Khan, he then said that he would not be pursuing U.S. crimes in the situation of Afghanistan, but really those by um, uh, Islamic forces. And then again, here you see the sanctions being lifted. So you really see the U.S. Um, playing the court when it suits them, i.e. now sort of supporting these arrest warrants against Putin, and then very much opposing the court and seeking to undermine the court when it goes against their own political interests. The USA has done this, as I said, over various administrations. And I, I don't see that changing, whether it's necessarily a Democrat or a Republican in government in the US. I think they will maintain this position where they will use the court when it's beneficial and oppose it when it threatens their interests. And this very much goes back to this idea about double standards. Um, uh, Oiso mentioned the, the, how quickly this prosecution or the case moved in relation to Ukraine. And I certainly saw that as a good thing. Um, there have also been cases before the European Court of Human Rights, and they've also been proceeding quickly. So in a lot of ways, human rights and criminal law institutions have been mobilized to address this issue, which is what uh, the whole idea is law, not war. So we're supposed to be using these legal institutions. But then you can also say, yeah, the Nigeria situation has been under preliminary examination for 10 years now. Um, the situation in Guinea has also been under preliminary examination for over a dozen years. Um, and the situation in Palestine has also been open in 2015, um, but we're yet to see any warrants or any um, accused persons in that case as well. So that's then again, when you look at this double standard and you say, right, lightning speed here, but literally dozens of years in other situations that haven't been resolved. Um, so I think this also colors responses to the ICC. Um, and how it operates in this political context. Out of interest, has there been any reply from the ICC to these accusations of double standards or... Sorry, Sadi, go ahead. If I may, um, a quick follow-up response to, to Julia. In fact, what I have already mentioned in my talk today, um, the arrest warrants were not announced with lightning speed, and at least as they are perceived by Ukrainians. 
the war has been ongoing for for more than nine years, and Ukraine submitted ad hoc declarations back in 2014-2015. So for Ukrainians, you can also claim that the arrest warrants were long overdue. Pretty or, much like or with, it's within the court's timelines of taking a decade. So then it's a, a no double standard. It's just slow business as usual. Indeed. So when you when you criticize the ICC uh, from the sort of Western standpoint, similar critique can be leveled against the same institution by Ukrainians. Yeah, I mean, now now that we've brought all, the whole question of double standards into it, and and uh, Seiki makes a very important point that I actually hadn't thought about. I have to admit, hadn't looked at it that way. But of course, if you uh, were to ask Ukrainians, as Seiki mentioned, then um, we don't start counting from February when the invasion happened, but from you know eight years ago. So in that in that case, it might look it might appear as if um, the ICC is slow in all situations. But then, of course, the, the, the impression here then is that most people across the world uh, consider the, um, I mean, when they, when they look at the Ukraine and, and Russia situation as, as, as regards the ICC, they start looking at it from the full-scale invasion of February. So in that case, they look at it as if, well, this, there's been too much speed here. So just to connect that, I, I think, on the question of double standards, I, I, we have to know that it's the first time that the prosecutor has gone after, you know, a member of the permanent five. So this is a very significant moment. We have to recall that there have been, oppo- been opportunities, of course, in the past for the prosecutor to go after the P5, but the prosecutor's chickened out, if I were to use that crude terminology. So case in point is Iraq, where despite making a finding that the UK forces had committed war crimes, and despite uh, you know the publicly notorious fact that the United Kingdom has done nothing notable to hold anyone accountable domestically, the prosecutor nonetheless controversially chose to close those investigations. Similarly, or for whatever flimsy excuse, Karim Khan decided to deprioritize the investigation of war crimes you know, committed by U.S. forces in Afghanistan, as Julie mentioned. So the Ukraine situation is, of course, the first situation where the prosecutor and the chambers have shown you know, some spine, so to speak, by boldly going after the P5, and significant for that. So secondly, it's also the first time that an arrest warrant is issued against a sitting head of state in a situation not referred by the Security Council. So the first time the, the, the court issued an arrest warrant for a sitting head of state, it was in the Sudan Darfur situation, and that was a situation referred by the Security Council. So this is the first time an arrest warrant has been issued uh, against a head of state, a sitting head of state, in a situation that is not has not been referred by the Security Council. So it is, um, what they really show, at least in theory, is that nobody is untouchable. And that actors in other situations have reason to be very jittery. But that, of course, is just, as I mentioned, uh, in theory. So all this means uh, that uh, Putin and uh, Bova's arrest warrant are important precedent, which can be a turning point for the court, especially if this momentum is sustained. It certainly changes, at least changes my perception, in as far as it proves that if the prosecutor is really minded to, it can actually pursue the P5. Having said that, of course, there's always a but. Having said that, however, the relevance of this you know, watershed moment will depend on what the prosecutor does regarding Afghanistan, specifically as um, regards alleged crimes by U.S. forces there and Palestine and other situations, but more prominently as regards Afghanistan and Palestine. If, on the one hand, the prosecutor makes significant movement soon in Afghanistan and in Palestine, then the arrest warrant against Putin and his co-accused will likely change, you know, at the very least, for the perceptions of bias as against the court. So if, if on the other hand, however, 
the prosecutor does not make any movement as regards Afghanistan and Palestine soon and very soon, then I'm afraid that the perception of bias is likely to persist or, it's, or even become more pronounced as this move then will likely be viewed as proof yet again that the, the court, the ICC's enthusiasm is only limited to those, I would say, safe situations that do not adversely uh, affect European and you know, North American interests and the interests of you know, their allies like Israel, for instance. So if nothing happens as soon as, you know, uh, very soon as regards Afghanistan and Palestine, then, you know, the Putin and Lvova Belova arrest warrants are likely to do, in my opinion, at least, uh, more damage to the court's reputation than any good. So in short, the bias and double standards issue isn't likely, you know, to go anywhere anytime soon. But the prosecutor at least has, uh, with this Ukrainian investigation, a unique opportunity here to turn the tide on this in order to vindicate the court and to win hearts. And, and how does the prosecutor do that? As I've mentioned, it will do that by making significant and serious movements as regards, you know, pal the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, Afghanistan as regards the, uh, the cr alleged crimes of U.S. forces there, and other situations that have been on the docket for quite a long time, including Nigeria, Guinea, and Myanmar, for instance. So if the prosecutor moves fast on this and very soon, very soon here is relative, but you know, we can estimate what that means. If the prosecutor moves very soon, then at least that will pour a lot of cold water on this perception of bias. But if nothing happens in those situations, then you know, I don't see this helping at all. In fact, and as, uh, as, as um, Khal asked a question, has the, uh, the court responded at all? No. In fact, there's been, uh, there's been actually significant um, calls from all over for the prosecutor to actually even issue a statement as regards, you know, uh, the Gaza, what's happening in the Gaza today, and Sudan, or any, anywhere really. But um, when, when Karim Khan took over office, he indicated quite strongly that he does not believe in the utility of statements. I agree with him to some extent, but there's some, something symbolic about issuing statements, especially when conflicts flare. So Karim Khan decided that he will not issue any statements. But, well, that he may have had a point until Ukraine happened, and he issues statements as regards Ukraine every other day, every other minute. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's actually very important. The call would simply be do the same with other situations, especially when conflicts flare up, like, you know, conflicts like, like the Gaza situation flares up every other minute and Sudan. So the prosecutor is not helping himself very much at the moment. But of course, I, I would love to give the fellow the benefit of the doubt. So taking all of this into account and thinking now about wrapping up this episode, I wanted to ask all of you to maybe spend a little bit of time giving your opinion on what these ICC arrest warrants mean for the perception of the court globally. Now, WISO has just begun this conversation by telling us, okay, look, actually, the court needs to act in other situations in order for their perception globally to change. But why does it matter how we look at the court? And what perceptions in particular? Whose perceptions are we concerned with? Is it the public? Victims? Is the state's party to the ICC or indeed those not party to the ICC? A couple of thoughts on that, if possible. I think it's a great question. And I think I want to address something that's perhaps even further beyond those, those stakeholders you just mentioned, and that's to address gender stereotypes. Because I think there's a perception that we commonly have in international criminal law and also on the ground in different cultures around the world that portray men as perpetrators. Certainly men like Putin, strong men who ride the horse without their shirt on, who, who, you know, really portray themselves as these powerful aggressors who, um, you know, are all, all dominant. And so there we see men as the perpetrators of crimes, the crime of aggression. 
Conversely to that, women are in these gendered roles as victims, as passive, as vulnerable, as needing protection. Um, and women are often then seen to be the victims of these crimes by men. And this relates both in domestic settings where, you know, you see men sort of are the typically the ones portrayed as the, the violent ones and women there again playing this role of the victim. And this is particularly the case in relation to sexual and gender-based violence as well, talking about rape, talking about domestic violence, these sorts of things. Always the perception that, you know, you'd sort of typically have in your mind would be the perpetrator being a man and the victim then being a woman. And this has played out in many different cultures and domestic jurisdictions around the world. But of course, everyone can be a victim also of sexual and gender-based violence. And equally, men and women are also perpetrators of violence. But these gendered roles and gender stereotypes really inform and influence the way we think and perceive these different actors. Um, and women's violence or criminality has often been treated differently to that of men. And women perpetrators are often um, portrayed as been having controlled by men in terms of their actions. They weren't acting independently. They were, you know, manipulated by men and then they were given lesser sentences. Or other times the role of women as a mother has been presented as a defense almost saying, I couldn't possibly be a war criminal. I'm a mother. I, you know, these are my children. I'm a wife. And these sort of norms or gendered roles are then put forward as an idea that women couldn't possibly be international criminals. So I think that these arrest warrants, particularly for Maria Lvova-Belova, is in a way welcomed because it helps to challenge those perceptions and those stereotypes about men and women in conflict. And I think we it causes us to reflect a little bit more and have some perhaps more nuanced consideration of uh, gender and how it informs um, what we expect of people, how we perceive of people. Um, as perpetrators and as victims. And we certainly also need to move away from binary conceptions um, about gendered roles of men and women and also that of victim and perpetrator. So in a way, I think it's it's positive that uh, Maria Lvova-Belova has also had this arrest warrant issued. But in many ways, it also really fits with stereotypes about women in the sense that she was the commissioner for children's rights. Again, we see a woman very rare in, in Russia's sort of powerful circle that there aren't very many women. And when there are women, there are things like commissioner for children. So that's a stereotyped role there as well. And in the media in Russia, she is often portrayed as being a savior of Ukrainian children. She talks about this herself, saying that she's rescuing these children from these conflict zones and that the Ukraine was failing to protect their own children. And there was a interview with her that just came out this month. And the interviewer poses a question to her and says, are you a war criminal? And in response to this, Lvova Belova laughs and she says, I am a mother. That says it all. She doesn't deny it. She simply states, I'm a mother. I cannot. That is therefore um, mutually exclusive from being a war criminal. And she has gone on to, in fact, foster children, including children taken from Ukraine. And she talks about this one 16-year-old boy that um, was uh, evacuated from Mariupol while Russia was attacking Mariupol. And she says that my heart called me to him. So again, sort of echoing this idea that she is a mother, that she's loving and caring and therefore cannot be a war criminal. Um, and we know that is, of course, not the case. There have been many female war criminals and international criminals um, around the world. 
Despite that fact, it's still really not prosecuted at the international level. There are some select examples from the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, and again from the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia of women who were um, convicted of international crimes, including rape and sexual and gender-based violence, which I think is also noteworthy. Um, but before the ICC, there's only been one other woman, uh, and that was Simone Bagbo, who was the wife of Laurent Bagbo, um, the former president of Cote d'Ivoire. And her case never came before the courts. She was never surrendered to the ICC. She was prosecuted domestically and then granted amnesty. So I think we also have to look at the way in which the media talks about um, Maria Lvova-Belova um, and how also she's portrayed in this trial, if it ever comes to be, how she's depicted and what gender stereotypes are used to either reinforce her as a monster or as a mother who can't possibly be a war criminal. Yeah, and indeed how often her arrest warrants and her actions are mentioned and engaged within the media, right? I mean, reflecting on our conversation just now, we're more than an hour in, and I wonder whether we've shone enough light on the fact that, hey, there are two people for which arrest warrants have been released, not just one arrest warrant for a head of state. Go ahead, said he. Um, yeah, I would like to add a couple of more comments um, to this debate, debate about gender in Western uh, discourses um, about Maria Lvova Bilova. She's mentioned only from the moment the SEC arrest warrants were announced. I believe nobody knew about her before that in the West. But if you look how she was portrayed by Russian media before, and for the audience of our podcast, I would like to say that she used to be a senator in the Russian parliament before she became the president's commissioner for children's rights. And uh, the Russian media portrayed her as a wife of a priest in some of their news about her activities. So in a way, in both, her, uh, in both jobs, in her capacity as the president's commissioner for children's rights and in her work as a member of parliament, the political component of her activities was downplayed by gender stereotypes. So she was not a full-fledged politician, but a wife of a priest. She cannot be a criminal, but just a mother saving children. And to contextualize this problem, the scope of this problem goes beyond human beings. In Russian politics, gendered stereotypes are exploited to denigrate even international organizations and sovereign states. For example, Dmitry Medvedev, the former Russian president, belittled the ICC as an impotent international legal entity that has done nothing significant since its inception, or put differently as an impotent and hence powerless man. In turn, Vladimir Putin, the current Russian president, known for his toxic masculinity, cracked a scandalous rape joke about Ukraine. Let me quote, like it or not, bear with it, my beauty. End of quote. Thus, he portrayed the neighboring state as a subdued, albeit pretty woman. Having said that, I would like to turn uh, to my general conclusions. I think that the ICC arrest warrants against Putin and Lvova-Bilova should be seen as a transformational moment 
for international criminal justice. Not very powerful states like Ukraine should come to the foreground. The voices of Ukrainians should be heard more, pretty much like the voices of other communities around the, the globe that has not been heard before. The questions of whataboutism, like why Ukraine and not Iraq, why Ukraine, not Afghanistan, can in principle be reversed by Ukrainians. They can say why Iraq rather than Ukraine, why Afghanistan rather than Ukraine. Uh, put differently, their criticism concerning double standards will perhaps continue as long as the ICC exists as an institution. Selectivity is inevitable in the work of the ICC prosecutor, um, and that must be admitted. Of course, all efforts should be made to prosecute uh, all alleged perpetrators of crimes, but there are, in fact, obstacles of logistical, political, and legal nature. I mean, from my perspective, I have to say I, I really agree with everything that Sergei's just said. I think my position is very similar. I, I'm hopeful. This is a turning point, I think, in my view. And I think that going forward, this can be used in, as an example of what should be done in a lot of other contexts. And I think that's the way we should move forward with optimism in that sense. I agree there will always be criticisms. If not this criticism, there will be another criticism at some point. But I think at this stage, we should use this as momentum to, to do better in other contexts as well. So not only for Ukraine, but for, for other contexts as well. I think the ISIS's response uh, in this case to Russia's aggression against Ukraine is impressive. Um, it's, a, it's a lesson on expeditious investigations, expeditious in this case, I say so cautiously, um, considering how the enlightenment we got from Saji. So it's indeed a lesson on expeditious exp uh, investigations, and it proves, contrary to the perception that the prosecution has created over the years, that expeditious investigations at the ICC are actually possible. Of course, this has been made easier, the specific investigation in Ukraine has been made much easier by the outpouring of funds directed towards the investigation, which in itself is an indictment of ICC member states themselves. What I mean by this is that since the establishment of the court, states have consistently uh, starved the court of funding, despite its incremental caseload. And this has left the court operate um, more like a budget court, and some very hilarious fellows have referred to it as an easy jet court because of the fact that it has very little money to pursue lots of cases. Then enter Russia and Ukraine, and suddenly states, most of these states being European and North American states, are falling over themselves to find, you know, to find money and fund the prosecutor's investigations. Um, notably, these same states that are now falling over themselves to fund this particular investigation have still refused to vote to increase the court's overall budget. In fact, I think for the very first time in almost 10 years, um, at the last Assembly of State Parties, states agreed to increase the court's budget, but by a minuscule, I, I may be mistaken, but it was probably less than 10,000 euros. So consistently, these same states have still refused to fund, you know, to vote to increase the court's budget. And this increase would go a very long way towards ensuring that all situations and all investigations are well funded. Instead, what they've opted for is an ad hoc voluntary contribution system which is directed at the specific investigation in Ukraine. Of course, funding the courts to conduct investigations is not a bad thing at all. 
even if it means the specific investigation in Ukraine, it's not a bad thing. Quite the contrary, we would all, I would certainly be very happy to see a well-oiled ICC that is capable of expeditiously responding to atrocity crimes. However, the rather serious concern here is that many are now wondering, many including myself, are now wondering where this sort of enthusiasm by the prosecutor and by states, where all this enthusiasm has been all along for equally urgent and horrific situations that have stagnated before the court. And we mentioned some of them in Palestine, Afghanistan, Georgia, and Nigeria. The perception that has been created, therefore, is of an unpleasant sort of hierarchy of situations and the hierarchy of victims and the hierarchy of survivors, both by the prosecutor and some and by some of these member states. And I and I do believe that this perception is actually, you know, um, the perception is actually very valid. It doesn't really matter what we think of that perception, but it actually does influence how multiple stakeholders actually view the court. So we, we I wouldn't want to dismiss it um, by, by by implying that, you know, as a, as a court, it will necessarily have issues of bias and whatnot. But this is a particular perception that ne- really does need to be to be addressed. And um, I'll, I'll refer here to what uh, Professor Chidi Dinkalu and Sharon Akanda wrote recently in an opinion you post a few a few weeks ago. That there's a perception now that has been created, and I quote, that the work of the prosecutor can be purchased on a cash and carry basis, meaning that those who want effective investigations can simply pay for them or buy them. And that is, end quote, and that is the, the perception that has now been created in this particular uh, regard. So if the prosecutor and the ICC member states are really serious, in my opinion, about impartial justice for all victims and all survivors of atrocity crime, then the enthusiasm of the Ukraine investigation provides a very good model, I believe, that should be adopted for all ICC situations and cases. So um, rather than to lament, uh, to lament about you know, the, the different approaches, and I do agree with Victoria here, I think we should laud the ICC's response to Ukraine, and I do laud it, and we should galvanize around it as a learning moment for how the ICC should respond to situations. So while um, why I'm not while I'm not very amused at the you know the time of events at how you know uh, the approaches have been different in particular situations in other situations as as compared to to the Ukraine situations, I am still very optimistic that this can actually be a teaching moment because it does show that the the court can actually work expeditiously if it means to do this and that state parties to their own statute can actually find the court if they mean to do so. So I think uh, rather than complaining about you know, how, how unfair this is or how biased this might be, I think we should look at this as a teaching and learning moment for the court on how exactly it should approach its investigation. So the Ukraine situation provides a very unique moment, a very unique learning and teaching moment. So I would not lament it, but I would point uh, at it, uh, rather I'll point to it as um, a very good example of what and how things should be done. Thank you, Wiso. And many thanks also to you, Julie, Victoria, and Serhi, for being part of this panel and sharing your thoughts on the various issues raised by these arrest warrants that we discussed today. Should you wish to read more about the topics discussed in this episode, some links have been provided for you in the description. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to you joining us on the next episode on the Hate Courts Dialogue Series podcast.